This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A 60-day cyber hiring sprint's underway at the Department of Homeland Security. Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas calls the effort, quote, the most significant hiring initiative the DHS has undertaken in its history. FCW reports the department's goal is to hire 200 cyber pros by July 1st. A Commerce Department financial management system modernization needs, quote, immediate attention, according to the department's Office of Inspector General. Commerce Assistant IG Frederick Many writes the Business Application Solution Program doesn't include plans to rethink the agency's business processes. The IG Office Management Alert says the project doesn't meet best practices for change efforts at federal agencies either. The Air Force is under pressure from Congress to name a leader for space acquisition. House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee Chair Betty McCollum and Ranking Member Ken Calvert say the department's moving too slowly to reform space acquisition. Breaking defense reports, acting Air Force Secretary John Roth told, the sub, told that subcommittee Friday he agrees. The cash influx in the Technology Modernization Fund should help agencies accelerate digital transformation efforts. Keeping the momentum going after the pandemic's over could be more of a challenge, though. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy retired, former deputy CIO of the Navy and former director of, cur of current operations at U.S. Cyber Command. She's author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. Donnell, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. Is, there, is the track in the military regarding digital transformation different than the civilian agents, agencies, do you think? Or are the organizations pursuing the concepts the same ways? I think uh, conceptually they're pursuing the concepts the same way. I think, uh, of course, the Department of Defense has a significantly higher budget than some of the agencies that are, that are smaller and don't have the resources to do the kind of uh, large-scale innovation modernization at speed that the military and the DOD are doing. And uh, it, agencies like the Department of Homeland Security, which got significant bump-ups in the uh, relief packages that were signed recently by Congress. so. A lot of money went in, particularly to the cybersecurity piece of that. Because um, as you know, with the remote workers, you have a whole host of now different cybersecurity challenges with people having their own devices and uh, trying to access information in the cloud potentially now and um, things that didn't used to happen when you, you worked in the perimeter of your network. And network security is no longer based on your perimeter. It's based on who you are and what information you need and where that is. So it's a completely different parameter. I mentioned the Technology Modernization Fund at the beginning of our conversation, Admiral. I, it's striking to me, I went down last night over the list of projects that the TMS, TMF is funding. I've never heard any defense organizations that have looked at tapping that fund. Is that a statement about the fund? Is that a statement about the amount of money that organizations already have, as you just alluded to? Or is it just coincidence, do you think? I would suspect it's more education related. I mean, um, there's a lot of funds out there that people, I'm surprised when I find out they don't know about them or they don't know about things that have been done in acquisition to make it easier for people to spend money, particularly on technology and particularly when you can beta test it and then transition it to a longer term capability. And so they've been trying in recent years, particularly in DOD, to speed up those acquisition processes because 
um, you know, technology is moving at an exponentially accelerating rate and our acquisition processes were made for buying ships and things like that, you know, things that will take years and years to build. So probably in the last 10 years, they've really been trying to eat around the edges and make some changes to those acquisition rules to make it easier to do that digital modernization. But we still need more work there and more education on what the art of the possible is with what is existing. What's your sense of how to scale that eating around the edges, Danelle? What does what does somebody who who has to do what, I guess, in order to scale that? Well, to scale it on from the acquisition perspective, and I'm not an acquisition expert, okay, but what I would tell you is that you need to focus on first the Navy does or the DOD does on what are those projects that are most important and most impactful for us? So for example, one of the things that the DOD is doing now is moving to a, a zero trust cybersecurity environment. That requires different infrastructure, different tools, different capabilities. And so when, when I say eating around the edges, okay, so let's find then those avenues where we have done some acquisition reform that will allow us to modernize very quickly for that zero trust environment, which we really need to address the remote work and everything that's happened with Corona, particularly, you know, um, but it allows that speed of transformation. Um, but pick those capabilities that are the most important, most impactful, go after those first and find those avenues where you can spend the money faster to get that capability fielded. The Pentagon obviously had to drive tremendous change in a very short period of time to move people to remote work, to telework at the beginning of the pandemic. And that has driven not just in the department, all across the government, uh, tremendous speed into the technology acquisition uh, realm. What keeps that momentum after the pandemic? What, what would help people to resist the temptation to say, okay, we're back to normal, so we'll go back to normal processes? Yeah, I mean, that's going to take leadership that says we're not going to do that, that that horse is out of the barn. We're not going to go back to that. And where we need where we had temporary things in place to give us relief to allow those processes to change. That's where we need to make those permanent or even make them better than they are. You know, even the changes that they have made make them more aggressive. I mean, when you look at the kind of expansion that we had, uh, DISA, for example, added 63 new circuits and hundreds of hundreds of megabits of new data available during the pandemic. The Army increased virtual private network capacity, you know, by 300 percent. They added a million new accounts to do a, a commercial virtual remote, which is your Teams, your Microsoft Teams environment, your collaborative environment for DOD people in one month. I mean, that kind of uh, progress was unheard of prior to that. And so let's take those lessons and institutionalize them now and don't allow the forces of evil and institutional inertia and resistance, which I say, my favorite friends in the Pentagon, those two, um, don't allow those forces to get back on the wagon. Uh, just don't do it, you know? You mentioned CVR, and one of the things that I think is an encouraging sign is that the Pentagon's already thinking about what's next after CVR. It's not like, well, we've transitioned to this, so we're going to keep this for a while. They recognize it was a temporary solution. It was necessary. It was fine for the purpose that it served, but they're ready to move on. Am I reading maybe too much into that, or is that indeed uh, a positive sign in your view? Yeah, I do think it's a positive sign because you want to have um, competition and collaboration. You don't want necessarily one company or one product or one something to do to be the be all end all because everybody has different requirements. Um, and so this was perfect to get out um, to do the remote work that we needed to do and to continue to function as a government and as a military, you know, because we have a whole bunch of people that aren't necessarily on a ship. They're sitting ashore supporting those people on a ship and they need to stay engaged and be at work, right? Whether their Fanny is at home or their Fanny is at work. And that collaboration certainly helps. Plus with, um, you know, this is not the last pandemic we're gonna have. This is not the last situation that we're gonna have where people need to be more mobile. The world and the trend in IT and technology is 
focused on the user and the mobility of the user and the security of the user and authenticating a user and making sure they can get to information wherever they need it. And so that trend will continue and the government sees that, which is why they've looked at, okay, like how do we figure out what the best collaborative environment is in the future? And that's constantly gonna be an upgrading moving target. Um, so you won't see like, hey, I'm gonna pick a collaboration software and have it for 15 years. And absolutely not, that's just not what happens in industry, that's not what happens in the world. And so the government needs to adapt their models to similarly leverage those great capabilities that the commercial industry provides. Uh, Danelle Barrett, new books, Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, Be a Successful Leader. Congratulations on that, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Up next, a potential procurement backlog looming straight ahead on Government Matters. The pricing problem an acquisition avalanche could cause. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Activity in agency procurement shops is about to skyrocket because of the billions of dollars coming to agencies from stimulus bills. A lot of that money will hit as agencies are gearing up for the fourth quarter of this fiscal year. Jim Williams is partner at Shamback and Williams Consulting, former acting administrator of the General Services Administration. Uh, Jim, welcome. It's great to see you. Where is the backlog potentially coming from that we could see in the coming months? Is it coming from other places beside what I suggested, or are those the big sources? Well, I think you mentioned the big sources. I think it's definitely coming from there. The, the new money that's coming in. I think is going to be one thing. I think there's also, as, as I see it, a bit of pent-up demand, that things have just simply been delayed somewhat through the pandemic. And, and I think that you know we're gonna see a tidal wave of money and requirements hitting these acquisition shops right now. What does that mean for organizations that will try to pump through as many things as they possibly can between now and September 30th? Well, I think it means a lot of things. It could mean that things don't get done, and I don't think leaders want to hear that. And, you know, they want things normally to be fast, and they want them to be good, and they want to be reasonable price. If you're just going for speed and putting the pressure on acquisition staffs, and I'm not just talking about procurement people, but requirements people, all those people, it's possible that you get it fast, but you don't get it necessarily good or at a reasonable price because you may be – not cutting corners, you're just doing things fast. I worry about people doing too much LPTA when it's not appropriate, just because it seems faster and safer. So that's where I wanted to go next, because the default that I've seen, you're certainly much more of an expert about this than me, but the default that I've seen over the years is that you go to low price, technically acceptable, when you need to just punch through a whole stack that's laying on one's desk. What should leaders be doing to make sure that doesn't happen, to make sure that these procurements continue to be evaluated uh, in a different way? Well, I think, first of all, you need to probably have a triage system uh, that if you want to do it right, let's prioritize getting those things right. 
I think that's very important. I think you also want to emphasize we want quality. And if you're looking at all this money that's being spent through the pandemic and other things, you want to know that the taxpayers got good value for money. And that means you also have to measure that. And I've talked about CPARs before. You want to make sure that we're measuring whether we got quality work out of these dollars. So I think that having a triage system, having it, making sure you measure it, but also making sure people understand we don't want you to simply go to LPTA when it's not appropriate. We want you to do your jobs, which be smart buyers and do technical cost trade-offs. I mean, that's something that as a U.S. government, we emphasize around the world as a best practice. Should part of that triage process that you talked about a moment ago, Jim, be when the money's supposed to be spent by? Because I don't, I'm not aware of any deadline for spending in the pandemic relief money, but obviously if it's a fiscal year, if it's an appropriated item for this fiscal year, you got to get it out by September 30th. I wonder if maybe that should be a part of that triage equation that you talked about. I think it has to be. And, I, and you know, it's not only that money, but you're saying, look what happened to the technology modernization fund. If that money starts being distributed quickly, people want to modernize. And those are not easy procurements especially if you're doing something where you're doing uh, agile, a whole lot of mini sprints, that takes a lot of requirements people, a lot of procurement people. Uh, I, I think you're really gonna have to look hard right now as trying to match up the resources you have for this coming tidal wave. There was a period of time three, four, five years ago, maybe a touch longer, that the concept of LPTA uh, touched just about every Pentagon acquisition that one would think about. Um, what did we learn from that wave of LPTA that are potentially consequences to avoid this time around, if that comes back? Well, I think you, you learn particularly in things like services contracts that you're competing with other sources for that talent and you're not going to get the talent you need. You may end up spending even more because you're using more of a lesser qualified resource. So I also think that there's a quality standpoint here. I mean, the missions of the United States government are important to the world and to the American people. And I'm not saying that we should always pay top price by any means, but we should get the quality we need. And, and a lot of these things can be very risky. And you want to, you know, as they say, get into the elevator that went to the lowest bidder. You don't want to. Uh, you want to make sure that we've got the right best value, which is a trade-off of the, of the quality and the price. You want a reasonable price, but you want to make sure we get the quality because that's what affects all these missions. So much of the government's missions are dependent upon contractors. You want to make sure we get the best we can out of them. So to avoid LPTA, is it as simple as just saying, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to do best value contracts only. I think it, to avoid LPTA, you've got to have well-trained people who know how to do this and don't think that it just simply is, is a waste of time. You've got to believe in it and you've got to train the people in how to do that, how to take uh, a proposal, look at the, the capabilities of that solution or what's in that proposal and quickly translate them into what are the mission benefits and then compare them to the cost. It's not that hard. We do it in our daily lives all the time when we make these kind of buying decisions. That's what smart buyers do. And we've got to get people to do that and not just take what looks like the easy way out is to get through the pre-award process and then pay for it in the post-award. That's that's like saying if, if I'm going to put a, you know, a new kitchen in my house, I'm just going to go to the lowest bidder and hope for the best. And the lowest bidder might be the best value.
but but if you're not looking at quality and past performance and risk, then you're just putting that post award, that, that contract management phase into great risk of failing. Jim Williams, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Thank you, Francis. Up next, a potential solution to the acquisition problems volume could create. Straight ahead on Government Matters, that solution is people. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The huge procurement blizzard that's coming could force changes in the way agencies buy. A movement is afoot to drive functional collaboration in acquisition. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting, former chief acquisition officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Greg, thanks for joining me today. What does the term functional collaboration in acquisition mean? Uh, good evening, Francis. Uh, thanks for having me. It, it means really bringing all the key players and stakeholders together. You know, it's somewhat a revitalization of the integrated product teams or the IPTs. And it's bringing in the mission owners, procurement, uh, logistics, uh, legal, budget, bringing everybody that's got a stake in the program of the acquisition together and to work it in a collective manner. Uh, it's really uh, the way to tackle complex problems, uh, and that collaboration can be very powerful. The cynic in the acquisition community would say, wouldn't that cynic say, Greg, that this is the way we should have been doing it all along, right? Uh, probably the cynic would say that, but there's no time machine, so there's you know no better time to start doing the right thing than now. Uh, and, and it is a best practice. Uh, if you went online and looked at some of the best practices and even things that we learned through the pandemic, this was again brought out as a best practice where you're bringing the team together. But unfortunately, that's not what a lot of organizations currently do. They operate more in a silo environment. What of those stakeholders that you mentioned are the ones that are most commonly left out of the process now in your view, Greg? Well, I think typically procurement uh, is left out till near the end uh, instead of bringing them in early into the process. I think budget is another organization that really needs to have a seat at the table and to line up what's happening with this acquisition with some of the outcomes and impacts the organization is trying to achieve and how does the budget support that? Right. If you bring budget into these conversations, you can really then start to have a strategy-driven budget instead of having a budget-driven strategy. Who? And to a degree, industry is somewhat left out because uh, there's a lot of hesitancy, hesitancy still in government agencies to talk to industry. No matter how many MythBusters OFPP puts out, there's still that big hesitancy. And we need to really bring industry into the mix early. I want to come back to that if we have time, Greg, because culture, I think, is the biggest driver there. Um, where is this working well in government now? Are there examples of organizations that are doing this well today? There are some examples where this is happening. Uh, most of it is somewhat episodic, uh, not really spread across complete agencies. Uh, the Intel community is having some success in this, reducing some of their cycle times. Uh, FEMA's had some success. DHS at large has had some success, particularly based on the work Soraya and Polly Hall are doing in the Procurement Innovation Lab, and now they're trying to spread this uh, sense of collaboration across in the department. Uh, General Holt at the Air Force had great success in bringing in this functional collaboration into category management, uh, and the VA is starting to work on doing that as well, but it, it is still more episodic and not really across uh, kind of the whole agency front. One of the things you said there sounds, <clears throat> excuse me, sounds really appealing as a side benefit, you said the intelligence community is reducing cycle times. That's kind of the gold standard. That's what everybody's going for, isn't it, Greg? Uh, absolutely. This is one of the ways to really do this. 
know, typically agencies will look at this in a silo and have part of the organization want to carve off its piece, work it, and then virtually kind of toss it over to the person in the next the cube. Uh, that just really is not how you pull down cycle time. You need to bring everybody in early and together and almost think about it the same way you would build a house. You bring all the functionals together. You don't build a house only with carpenters. You have carpenters and plumbers and electricians, and they have a plan. They have a blueprint. They all come in and they work to that. They sync up to that, and that's how you're able to pull in and get rid of, in fact, a lot of the scrap and rework, which then lengthens the time frame. You mentioned the procurement lab at DHS, and Soraya was on the program a couple of weeks ago kind of with an update there. That came to my mind first as you started to describe who all needed to be in the room. What changes this from being more episodic at organizations to being kind of the, the standard operating procedure? So, so, Francis, that's really what we need to do. We need to take this best practice and make it a common practice. Too many times we'll study and study and look at a best practice and list them and post them and go, oh, these are best practices, but they're really not common. And I think some things we need to do, OPP needs to continue to be a voice and an advocacy uh, for functional collaboration and IPTs. The Chief Acquisition Officers Council, I think, has a role to come with a strong position on this. And Francis, I think it's time to start thinking about mandating training. And there's two great programs out there, the Seesaw, the Civilian Services Acquisition Workshop, which really brings in all the stakeholders early, even when the requirements development process is, is, is happening and then maps out a strategy and maps out a roadmap to go forward. And for IT, the digital IT acquisition professional training really is a great way to bring in the community if you have an IT procurement. And in fact, it itself was a collaboration between OFPP and the US Digital Services team. We have about 30 seconds left, Greg. What will you watch to see whether this idea of functional collaboration really takes hold? Uh, what I'll be looking for is to see leadership really take a strong stand on this. I think there's a lot uh, at the working level that sees the value in this, but they don't see the structure and the process in place to enable this. So again, I, I think the policy perspective needs to come out and really starts to push for some mandatory training to make sure the teams start off moving in the right direction with all the right people in the right seats on the same bus on the same journey. Greg Giddens, thanks very much as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? 
it's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20 year old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still st stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.